Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Taking It Out of Neutral, Critical Race Theory. In our episode on Black British Cultural Studies, we discussed how Stuart Hall and his colleagues worked with the concept of a moral panic. Moral panics function by directing social anxieties against a convenient target, which helps dominant groups to shore up their power, in part by distracting people from real problems. We hypothesized that Hall would have seen the recent political frenzy over immigration in the United States and Europe as a predictable example, but even he might have been surprised to see the recent moral panic in America centering on a philosophical movement that began among professors and students at law schools. Over the past few years, there has been a loud public debate over what is called critical race theory, which has gone so far that state legislatures have passed laws against using its themes and methods in schools. In this case, the link to what Hall called popular authoritarianism was a lot more direct and obvious than in your typical moral panic, which makes it an interesting case study. Also unusual is the fact that this moral panic can largely be traced to the efforts of just one man, a culture warrior named Christopher Rufo. He used media appearances to whip up concern over critical race theory, even persuading President Donald Trump to issue an executive order to combat it, uh, whatever it is. Among the lamentable features of this farcical sequence of events, the inaccurate picture that has been spread about critical race theory is certainly not the worst, but it is still a pity because critical race theory offered a sophisticated analysis of the American legal system and one with wide-ranging philosophical implications. The obfuscation was by design. Rufo has spoken openly of using this three-word phrase as a brand category, indiscriminately applying it to any progressive discussion of racial issues. Even if you try to seek out more careful definitions of CRT, though, what you will find will probably be much too general. Often it is summarized as the view that racism has been an enduring and defining feature of American society and politics since the inception of the country. That's certainly a background presupposition of CRT, but it's a point David Walker was already making in the 19th century and can be found in any number of Africana thinkers we've covered. As for the idea that the fundamental role of racism in American history should be taught in schools, this has little or nothing to do with the origins of CRT. Sylvia Winter's work would be more relevant for this point. Anyone who has followed the recent controversy would probably be astonished to learn that, in reality, the main targets of CRT included the traditional civil rights movement, attempts to desegregate schools, as in the busing programs of the 1970s, and anti-discrimination laws. A central idea of the movement, if not the central idea, was one that has not featured in today's debates over CRT at all, probably because it is far too nuanced to be a serviceable target for conservative polemicists. This idea is that issues of race in the United States should not be dealt with in a formalist way by trying to pursue the rather abstract goal of equality before the law, but in a realist way by thinking through the concrete results of legal decisions. Thus, CRT was, among other things, an inquiry into unintended consequences. Its exponents showed, for instance, how it might be counterproductive to gerrymander voting districts to ensure black political representation, or to think of civil rights primarily in terms of desegregation. As these examples imply, CRT was specifically a school of legal thinking, and the key writings typically appeared in legal journals. As it turns out, this also explains the name. 
The scholars who first developed critical race theory were adapting, but also criticizing, an earlier movement called critical legal studies. This was an approach adopted beginning in the late 1970s among progressive, mostly white, legal thinkers. They questioned the idea that law exists in a realm that is somehow outside politics because of its objectivity, neutrality, and universality. It might seem that laws are politically neutral because they usually cut across the group interests that are so characteristic of political life. For example, if it's illegal to sell alcohol on Sundays, then it's illegal for everyone to do so. And if the punishment for selling alcohol on Sundays is a $100 fine, then that fine is the same for anyone who gets caught doing it. After all, before the law, we are all equal. Against this, the scholars who grouped themselves under the banner of critical legal studies argued that the apparent neutrality of the law conceals its deeply political nature. Take the example we just chose. It is presumably Christians who don't want alcohol to be on sale on Sundays, so for the government to pass this law implicitly suggests that the state favors Christian values over the values of other people. Furthermore, the way that laws are applied may be highly politicized, as when a given law is enforced more against one group of people than anyone else, even though in theory they are no more subject to it than anyone else. CRT also drew on an older tradition called legal realism. The legal realists, who were already active in the first half of the 20th century, emphasized the importance of considering the concrete context when applying laws, instead of simply following precedent or applying laws as abstract measures. If critical legal studies suggested that legal neutrality is an illusion, legal realism argued that pursuing neutrality is actually counterproductive, because it can lead to unjust results. For example, perhaps our alcohol vendor lives in grinding poverty, despite working from Monday to Saturday. She sells beer on Sundays to make ends meet. Taking this into account, the legal realist might recommend not prosecuting her at all or reducing her fine. CRT was born out of the observation that the white scholars making such points were failing to apply them in the realm of the law dealing with race. Kimberly Crenshaw, who is generally credited with inventing the term, explains this well in an essay from 1998 called Race, Reform, and Retrenchment, Transformation and Legitimation in Anti-Discrimination Law. She values the insights of critical legal studies, but deems its critique incomplete because it overlooked racial issues, one of the most important areas in which law is tacitly political. Her example was civil rights. It may seem obvious that the passing of civil rights laws was a great and unalloyed good, a huge step in the direction of making America less racist. While Crenshaw does not deny that passing these laws was a good thing, she points out that they have often been applied in a rather narrow fashion. She contrasts what she calls a restrictive view of rights and an expansive view of rights. An expansive view would demand real concrete equality of opportunity for black people, whereas a restrictive view would simply remove formal rules and signs of their inequality. Obviously, Crenshaw is saying here that a restrictive view of rights does not go far enough, but there's more to her argument than that. For one thing, given this focus on the symbolic, the outlawing of segregation was in some ways more significant for relatively well-off black people. Furthermore, and more insidious still, there is a great danger in eliminating explicit racism, in creating a situation where whites and blacks are, as we put it just a moment ago, equal before the law. This lies in the fact that blacks remain very unequal in socioeconomic terms, despite being equal in that abstract legal sense. It's easy and comforting for white Americans to say to themselves, thank goodness we got rid of racism in the 60s, and now we're all equal, even when confronted with plenty of evidence of real-world inequality. Indeed, 
Once there are no formal restrictions on Black people taking any job they can get, going to any school they like, marrying whoever they want, and so on, it can easily seem that any remaining inequality must simply be their fault. After all, we're running a fair system here. The civil rights movement saw to that. And whoever finishes bottom in a fair system must actually be less talented or less driven. They must, in some sense, deserve to be at the bottom. As Crenshaw summarizes her own argument, the race neutrality of the legal system creates the illusion that racism is no longer the primary factor responsible for the condition of the black underclass. Instead, as we have seen, class disparities appear to be the consequence of individual and group merit within a supposed system of equal opportunity. There's a crucial point here, which is something we've seen in other areas of Africana thought, but is especially important in CRT. For Crenshaw and the other crits, racism is not primarily a matter of irrational biases held by individuals. It's a systematic and pervasive feature of American society. This, by the way, is the one idea that recent media coverage usually gets right when it is trying to explain what is distinctive to CRT. Because the effects of racism are mostly perpetuated through structures and institutions, not through the actions of individuals, there will always be a tendency for laws, even well-meant ones, to be applied in ways that fail to ensure real equality, or even actively undermine real equality. We've seen a good example of this just recently, with the Supreme Court's 2023 decision to prohibit affirmative action in university admissions. Here, the court has firmly endorsed what Crenshaw called a restrictive or merely formal notion of equality over an expansive or realist one. Justice Clarence Thomas even wrote in explaining his vote that he was upholding the idea that all men are created equal, are equal citizens, and must be treated equally before the law. Introducing policies to help a disadvantaged group may be counted as just as much a violation of this formal principle as having policies that harm that same group. By this reasoning, affirmative action falls into the same legal category as Jim Crow segregation. So here we have a crystal clear case of a phenomenon that has always been of interest to CRT, the prioritizing of abstract rules of justice over real-world consequence. For an alternative perspective on affirmative action, we can turn to a classic article called Whiteness as Property, published by Cheryl Harris in the Harvard Law Review in 1993. Harris begins the piece with the story of her grandmother, who passed as white, in order to secure a good job in retail in 1930s Chicago. Her grandmother used subterfuge to claim an economic benefit, in this case improved employment prospects, that would normally be reserved for white people. Generalizing from this, Harris suggests, as the title of her piece already indicates, that whiteness is a form of property. She cites the British utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham's definition of property as the basis of expectation, where what is expected is the opportunity to draw advantage from the thing possessed. Back in the 1930s, and still today, whiteness confers all sorts of privileges. So by Bentham's definition, it is not just figuratively, but literally a valuable possession that belongs to white people, no less than a house, car, or money in a bank account might belong to them. Notice that there's a nice double meaning here. Whiteness is a kind of property, both in this sense and in the sense of a characteristic, as when we say that a piece of paper has the property of being white. Also characteristic of property is the right to exclude. You can't use my possessions without my permission, like by driving my car or living in my house. And this too applies to whiteness. White society carefully and systematically guards its privileges, that is the advantages that stem from whiteness, by making sure other people don't get to have the same advantages. 
Affirmative action can be understood as an attempt to compensate for this situation. Preferential hiring or admissions of non-white people would balance out these people's lack of a valuable possession, as you might lend someone a car so that they could go to work, whereas you wouldn't need to do that for someone who already has one of their own. Thus, as Harris put it, refuting the Supreme Court 30 years in advance, affirmative action is based on principles of anti-subordination, not principles of black superiority. The analytical tools of CRT could also be turned against more surprising targets, which is something we find especially in the work of Derek Bell. He is generally taken to be the father of critical race theory, though he was modest enough to say that this was an, an exaggeration. Bell grew up in Pittsburgh, and his family's story is strikingly and depressingly reminiscent of what we saw with Cedric Robinson. Bell's father was sent north from Alabama after a violent confrontation with white kids to live with relatives. Born in 1930, Bell served in the Air Force and then got a law degree at the University of Pittsburgh, the only black member of his class. He started to work for the NAACP and was a colleague of Thurgood Marshall's. In this connection, Bell was involved in hundreds of lawsuits over desegregation. He would later be a professor of law in Oregon and at Harvard, which he left in protest over Harvard's refusal to hire a well-qualified black woman to the law school. But we should linger especially over that stint as a desegregation attorney, since it is relevant to one of his earliest and most provocative writings. In 1976, he published a piece in the Yale Law Journal called Serving Two Masters, Integration Ideals and Client Interests in School Desegregation Litigation. It questioned the very effort to which he had dedicated so much of his time, the effort to use courts as a means to desegregate schools in America. Obviously, Bell was not an apologist for racist segregation. His argument was rather much like the one later given by Crenshaw in her more general analysis of civil rights, a well-meant and apparently unobjectionable attempt to enforce racial equality was in some ways actually hurting black people. As so often, W.E.B. Du Bois had gotten to the key point decades earlier. Bell quotes him saying, The Negro needs neither segregated schools nor mixed schools. What he needs is education. Along the same lines, Bell observed that demographic realities may simply make it unfeasible to distribute children among schools so that they are all fully and proportionately mixed. To put it bluntly, in an area with an overwhelmingly black population, the best way to help is to make sure the schools are good, not to try to move kids around to mix together white and black students. White parents were up in arms about busing their kids to majority black schools, but black children weren't necessarily benefiting from being bused to white schools either. In short, Bell states, Commitment to an integrated society should not be allowed to interfere with the ability to represent effectively parents who favor education-oriented remedies. Not long after, Bell published another provocative piece, Brown vs. Board of Education and the Interest Convergence Dilemma, this time for the Harvard Law Review. Here, he considered just how and why the American government became willing to enforce desegregation. It would be nice to think that this was a case of white people surrendering some of the advantages they get from their whiteness, sacrificing themselves for the good of oppressed fellow citizens. But, surprise, surprise, that is not how Bell understands this momentous Supreme Court decision. White America benefited at this point in time from getting rid of segregation, because during the Cold War, Soviet propaganda constantly pointed to oppressive policies in the American South, making it appealing to get rid of this source of embarrassment. In general, Bell thinks, we can assume that black people only get concessions when it happens to suit the purposes of white people. This is the convergence of interests mentioned in the title of the piece. As he puts it, 
Whites may agree in the abstract that blacks are citizens and are entitled to constitutional protection against racial discrimination, but few are willing to recognize that racial segregation is much more than a series of quaint customs that can be remedied effectively without altering the status of whites. The extent of this unwillingness is illustrated by the controversy over affirmative action programs. Whites simply cannot envision the personal responsibility and the potential sacrifice inherent in the conclusion that true equality for blacks will require the surrender of racism-granted privileges for whites. This would help to explain phenomena like those observed by Crenshaw and Harris. Of course, racial equality has been interpreted in a formal and abstract way, as when a color-blind approach in law is used to strike down affirmative action. The point of desegregation laws and other civil rights legislation was never to overturn real-world inequality, never to give up the advantages that stem from the possession that is whiteness. To the contrary, it is axiomatic that American laws and governance serve the interests of white people. It's just that sometimes they happen to serve the interests of black people, too. This may sound like a bleak perspective on race in America, and for good reason, because that's exactly what it is. In subsequent writings, Bell developed a view he called racial realism, which, as we mentioned, is modeled on the earlier approach of legal realism. One aspect of Bell's realism is, as we also said, taking more account of real-world situations in legal rulings. But for him, it also means something else, namely admitting that real and not merely formal racial equality is not a realistic goal in America. To make this unattainable goal the measure of success simply leads to frustration and despair. Instead, black people should reconcile themselves to the fact that America will always be an unequal society, and then think about how best to cope with that situation. For example, they might seek value and struggle for its own sake, even while knowing that it will not ultimately succeed, or they might focus on incremental improvements, for instance by making black schools better. Bell's worldview found its most remarkable expression in a series of books that weave together legal ideas with fantasy and science fiction narratives. The most widely read of these books bears the telling title, Faces at the Bottom of the Well, The Permanence of Racism. It features short stories with fabulous conceits. For example, a new land rises out of the ocean like a version of Atlantis, but only black people can step onto it, raising the question whether African Americans should all go live there. Here, Bell explicitly mentions earlier partisans of emigration like Paul Cuffey and Martin Delaney. Or, racists can purchase a license from the government that allows them to discriminate against black people, in much the way that corporations can purchase a license to pollute the environment. Or, all white Americans are suddenly deluged with a mental stream of data, a so-called statistical bombardment, informing them about the economic disadvantages of black people. Much of this is reminiscent of Afrofuturist literature, especially a story in which space aliens turn up and offer to give America resources to solve all of its problems in exchange for being allowed to depart with the entire black population. Bell thinks white America would, after a suitable display of moral hesitation, make that trade very gladly. In additional dialogues that reflect on the meaning of the stories, Bell depicts himself chatting with a fictional lawyer named Geneva Crenshaw. And the last name is not a coincidence. Bell told Kimberly Crenshaw that he borrowed her name for the character. Their conclusions fall into line with the CRT critique of formalist thinking and with Bell's racial realism. As he says at one point, black people will never gain full equality in this country. This is a hard-to-accept fact that all history verifies. We must acknowledge it, not as a sign of submission, but as an act of ultimate defiance. Even with the grimness of this assessment, Faces at the Bottom of the Well is an entertaining read, with its imaginative flights of fancy and Bell's tart sense of humor. 
one zinger concerns the educational environments he knew so well, law school teaches a great deal about appellate opinions and very little about the law. That's not an accusation you can throw at critical race theory. It has raised important questions about what law is and what it is for. But this is only the beginning of its importance for philosophy. In closing, let's look at two other dimensions of CRT's philosophical relevance. The first, and less famous of the two, concerns its implications for democracy. For this, we want to talk about a 1993 piece from the Texas Law Review called Groups Representation and Race-Conscious Districting, A Case of the Emperor's Clothes. Its author was Lani Guineer, who came to national prominence when President Bill Clinton tapped her to work for the Justice Department, but then withdrew the nomination after conservatives complained in a foreshadowing of the modern-day moral panic over CRT. In this piece on voting districts, Guineer explores the way that excessive legal formalism can undermine voter representation. The straightforward idea of equality between voters is a lot like the idea of racial equality on Crenshaw's restrictive interpretation. There should be no difference between voters. The candidates who win the election are assumed to represent the interests of all voters, even the ones who didn't vote for them. They will be motivated to do so, in hopes of winning support from as many voters as possible next time around. As Guineer suggests with her phrase about emperor's clothes, we are again dealing with an abstract principle that fails to work in reality. Both individuals and groups often find that their views are not considered, and have no chance of ever being considered, by the governments they are supposedly helping to elect. For example, suppose you live in Massachusetts, where I grew up. This is a deep blue state. We even voted against Nixon in 1972, the only state to vote for McGovern. I still remember seeing bumper stickers as a kid that said, Nixon 49, America 1. Realistically, no vote cast in a U.S. presidential election in Massachusetts makes a darn bit of difference. If the Democratic candidate fails to win there, then they will fail to win everywhere. In Guineer's terms, the votes are wasted, because they are either cast for the losing candidate, or for the candidate who will win easily and doesn't need the vote. And of course, the same is true in reliably red states. The only voters who actually get to decide the result are those who happen to live in swing states. So here, the one voter, one vote principle of equality leads to massive inequality in real voter influence. Furthermore, there's no reason for officials to try to represent the interests of constituencies that repeatedly fail to impact on the results of an election. For example, a first-term U.S. president of either party would be foolish to worry about what people in Massachusetts think. They should focus on people in swing states like Ohio or Florida if they want to get re-elected. Guineer does not give this exact example, instead exploring less obviously unfair situations like state elections where demographics or gerrymandering have brought it about that voters cannot actually expect their votes to make a difference. Now, all this might look more like a technical issue of procedure, but it is also a philosophically important insight. As Guineer puts her conclusion, we cannot define political fairness merely as electoral fairness. Again, equality of procedure leads to inequality in result. In this case, if we want actual democratic representation, we need a system that ensures that group interests are actually reflected in the makeup of the government, which would presumably mean some form of proportional representation, as is often used in Europe. Finally, let's turn to what may be the single most famous idea to come out of CRT. This takes us back to Kimberly Crenshaw. Her influence on the language and thought of our current century is immense, for despite being the originator of CRT as a term, she is even better known for inventing the term intersectionality. This refers to the special form of discrimination suffered by people who belong to more than one disadvantaged group, for example, black women. 
You might say that this concept is nothing new, and Crenshaw would agree. In one of her articles on the topic, she cites Sojourner Truth and Anna Julia Cooper as having already had the same central insight and begins by citing a book title we've mentioned numerous times, All the Women Are White, All the Blacks Are Men, But the Rest of Us Are Brave. One might also mention earlier 20th century precursors like Claudia Jones and her concept of triple oppression. But Crenshaw brings something new to this long-running discussion by focusing on the specifically legal dimension of intersectionality. Writing at the end of the 1980s, she is reflecting on a situation where anti-discrimination law is well entrenched, a very different situation from that facing Truth, Cooper, or even Jones. Crenshaw explains how the intersectional interests of Black women are, nonetheless, not served by the current legal framework. She gives as an example a lawsuit brought against General Motors for not hiring Black women. The suit was rejected on the grounds that the company had a track record of hiring Black men and white women. The court explicitly told the plaintiffs that they had to show that they were suffering from race discrimination, sex discrimination, or alternatively either, but not a combination of both. More generally, Crenshaw argues, Black women suffer from what she calls the but-for logic of anti-discrimination laws. A Black person is recognized to suffer discrimination if they would, say, get a job but for the fact of being Black, and the same for women, if they would be hired but for their gender. Black women have a harder time getting certain kinds of job than either Black men or white women, yet the but-for rule lets companies off the hook, so long as they hire these two other groups. Crenshaw offers the powerful image of a basement with a human pyramid of people trying to get up to the ground floor. Discrimination law and the but-for test provide a trap door through which the least disadvantaged at the top of the pyramid can climb while leaving everyone else down in the basement. As Crenshaw writes, underlying this conception of discrimination is a view that the wrong which anti-discrimination law addresses is the use of race or gender factors to interfere with decisions that would otherwise be fair or neutral. This process-based definition is not grounded up in a bottom-up commitment to improve the substantive conditions for those who are victimized by the interplay of numerous factors. This conclusion is very similar to Bell's judgment about education, where a focus on supposedly equal, unbiased, neutral procedures trumps consideration of real-world effects. This is the real message of CRT. Outlawing segregation, enshrining civil rights in the law, and establishing anti-discrimination measures was the easy part. None of this was a waste of time or a bad idea, but all of it taken together was not enough, and it had unexpected and unwelcome effects, not the least of which was allowing many people to assume that the job was done. Ironically enough, no one has insisted on that faulty assumption more loudly than those involved in the modern-day moral panic over critical race theory. We're getting increasingly close to being able to say that our own job is done, as we approach the end of this long series of episodes on the 20th century. But we're not there yet, in part because we have yet to speak about a man who has flitted in and out of our story a few times already. In fact, he wrote a preface to the most useful collection of writings from the critical race theory movement. He'll be the last figure to get a dedicated episode all to himself in this series in our first episode of the new year. So, come 2024, you can go west with us, Cornell West, that is, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 